Hello, and welcome to Cultivate, a podcast about leadership in agriculture in rural Oklahoma. My name is RJ Gray, and I'm the CEO of the Oklahoma Agricultural Cooperative Council. In this podcast, we talk to a variety of leaders in our industry about their leadership journey, their influences, their unique challenges. We're going to hear some success stories, and we're going to hear some war stories, but it's all done through the unique lens of agriculture in Oklahoma. Our guest today is Chris Myers, the general manager and CEO of the Oklahoma Association of Electric Cooperatives. Chris has held this position for 12 years. Prior to that, he spent 25 years with the OG&E Energy Corp, where he held several roles from government affairs, shared services, to daily operations and engineering. Pretty much every division in the company, it seems. Chris received his bachelor's degree from Kansas State University and his master's at OU. Pretty much everyone in Oklahoma State alone hates right now. Chris, thank you for <laughs> Chris. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Hey, so just to kind of get us kicked off, uh, start with why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the Association of Electric Cooperatives and kind of your role there and what you guys do for your members? Sure, RJ. Um, the Oklahoma Association of Electric Cooperatives has got 30 member co-ops. Um, there are 27 distribution co-ops. They serve the consumer at the end of the line and they are supported by three generation and transmission cooperatives who provide the power um, that gets delivered to them. So we we serve in all 77 counties, uh, not a whole lot in Oklahoma and Tulsa counties, but we are in those counties. And, um, you know, we serve about 93% of the land mass, actually. So we're, we're all over wow. rural Oklahoma. Absolutely. So speaking of that, uh, tell us about rural Oklahoma and rural America specifically. You know, what is it about these areas that are so special to you? I know you grew up in rural Kansas, Cunningham, Kansas, I believe. Yes. Yep. Yes. Very rural area. Yes. I feel like, you know, it's, it's the people that I grew up with. It's, um, you know, they're just good, honest people. Uh, I've, I've always been um, kind of a rural person, and so I think it's a, you know, it's a good fit for me. I enjoy going out to the rural electrics and the smaller communities. And, you know, I always say I, I take the most direct and quick route there, but I meander home because I love to see the, you know, the countryside. Absolutely. Uh, that, that me, me as well. It's nice to get out of the city and see some uh, green and, yeah. and uh, good people. Um, what kind of threats uh, do you see to agriculture and rural life in America? You know, and what kind of leadership do you think it's going to take to address those things? Well, you know, rural, rural Oklahoma, rural America, but rural Oklahoma, you know, I'll just speak from the electric co-ops. You know, two of the biggest industries in this state are agriculture and oil and gas, and those are pretty rural. We serve those two industries but we're there we've seen oil and gas be so up and down um <clears throat> and then you know it takes fewer and fewer people um to work the land it seems so we i i think one of the big challenges is um, keeping our infrastructure up for these small rural communities i know a lot of communities are struggling mm -hmm. just to keep you know their water systems and everything up so um I think one of the concerns is, you know, we all go to the city to shop and all of our tax dollars are in the cities and, and we don't have enough local mm -hmm. businesses generating some tax revenue. But yeah. I think that's uh, that's the challenge that I see in a lot of our small communities. Just economic challenges? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, one of the issues I think that, um, you know, we've specifically kind of paid attention to um, from just not only from an ag cooperative perspective, just because of the need for it, but also to just from a rural America perspective is this need for broadband. So, you know, I know like my electric cooperative that I belong to, they're one of the, I think one of two, maybe one of three, one for sure that's operational now and has provided a huge service for, for my home and my household. You know, what are your thoughts, you know, rural electrification was so important to uh, rural poverty, rural, rural America when no one would go there. And did you see the same thing happen with broadband or? You know, broadband is so, it's different than electricity, but it's similar in other ways. You're, you're correct. You know, in the 30s, um, no one was interested in serving rural America. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't fit the for-profit model. And so, you know, 30 years after people in the city had electricity, you went back to the farm and you still didn't have it. And so if not for the, the cooperative business model, people in the rural areas would still be without power, is my belief. Because Absolutely. it's just not, if I'm, if I'm a shareholder in a for-profit, I don't want you to go out there. So, you know, the co-ops um, uh, did a great job of electrifying rural Oklahoma. The same is true with broadband. The reason that there isn't broadband out there is it's just not profitable, or it doesn't meet the, you know, the, the profits um, needs of these companies. And so they'll, they'll maybe get a business or two, but they're just not interested in going to that last mile. And we've got <coughs> several co-ops. I think we've got, we're up to 10 co-ops now out of 27. Wow. 10. Wow. 10, 10 out of 27 who are getting started with broadband. It's still a density problem, though. I mean, it's uh, the farther west you go, the harder it is to make that work. We've got co-ops that have as few as two meters per mile. Wow. And one of those is an irrigation uh, yeah. well. So it just, it's hard when it's twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a mile to string fiber. It's hard to make that work. And I think that's why, you know, we're going to need a lot of federal assistance to actually get broadband out into some of those areas. But, you know, the cooperatives um, have had a lot of success, those that have engaged in it. They tend to be more in the eastern part of the state, mm-hmm. the northeast, where they have a little bit better density. Mm-hmm. So the co-ops are able to do it where the for-profits really um, haven't. So our, we, we don't require the profit piece. Yeah. So you've kind of already alluded to some of it, but you work both in the private industry and in the cooperative sector. Mm-hmm. In your mind, what makes the cooperative sector so so much more special? At least it I mean, that may not be fair to say for you, but it is for mm-hmm. me. So what makes the co-op sector more special to you? Well, I think the big difference, the, the delivery of power is the same. I always say utilities come in three flavors, the investor owned, the municipal systems, and then the electric co-ops. Yeah. You can't really tell the difference between one's construction or the others. I can. I can see the subtle differences, but it's all the same. So delivering power is is the same. It's the business model that's different. And uh, what's unique and special, I think, about electric cooperatives, it's member-owned. I mean, you know, in the 1930s, um, what the federal government provided was a business model and access to capital. It's very expensive to build this infrastructure out. But then the co-op is governed by its membership. 
And so, you know, we have annual meetings and people show up. They're more engaged than any other utility model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good, because I got the real, got real people out in real areas um, yes. that have vested interest in having electricity or broadband or whatever. Right. Do you see the urban rural divide that so many people talk about um, in politics, in culture, you know, et cetera? Is that a concern? And if so, how do we close that gap? You know, it is a concern. Um, we see every census, we see fewer uh, and fewer legislative districts in the rural areas. Um, and, and, you know, I, I do think a lot of urban and I'll just talk about legislatures the legislature, I think a lot of them do still have some rural connections and Mm -hmm. rural ties, um, family or even themselves. But yeah, it is changing. Um, It's unfortunate that there is a divide like that. But, uh, you know, I I think at least for us, you know, we really got to focus on what's best for the state. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not healthy for the state if if rural areas fall behind. I mean, I think that's what we see in broadband it's just not um it's it's not good for our state to leave anyone behind yeah and so we're you know we do what we can to provide reliable and affordable uh power in these rural areas which you know is a challenge and but um that's our that's our objective yeah so switching to you now who were some of your leadership mentors as a young person and who have been your mentors throughout your career you know, I, I think that um, I've had multiple mentors and maybe didn't even recognize it at the time. You know, I, I'll use my dad as an example. I think he, you know, he never would sit me down and say, you, you know, here's, I'm going to, you know, here's some things to live by and all of that. But he just did it by example. And yeah. so, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to grow up uh, around someone who was very engaged served on a lot of boards, um, you know, mayor. I mean, he was just plugged in. And um, so I learned a lot from that. And then career-wise, you know, I think what we do is we kind of gravitate to people that are similar styles to us. You know, I I think that um, that's just what we do. And I had, um, you know, folks that would say things that uh, were just, advice and they would stick, you know, Yeah. Um, you know, I, I did move around a lot. I got a lot of opportunities. And when you take a position in an area that you haven't really grown up in, you really, you have, you have to learn a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't just go in there and start dictating. And, uh, some advice I got was, you know, don't change anything for the first six months because there could be very good reasons why things are they are or yeah. the, the way they are, and that's just good advice. I mean, I think you you need to learn and and understand before you can even consider making any changes. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I, I think that um, you know another good piece of advice is you know you can only change as fast as people can accept it. Yeah. You may have the greatest idea. But if people aren't ready for that, they will sabotage it. It will, it will fail. And so, I mean, that is really kind of common sense, I think. But I've had mentors in the past that would verbalize that. And it just sticks with you. And, and so when you, you know, I often think about that. You know, we know we're in a very uh, changing industry. And um, 
you know, not everybody sees the change at the same time. And so you have to spend a little time and you may not get everybody, but you better spend the time to get everyone um, willing to see that the change is needed and accept it and actually promote it. Yeah. So how have the mentors uh, helped develop your own leadership style? How have they helped you develop your own leadership style? You know, I think um, I observed them. Um, They did offer great advice, you know. Um, And, and again, I think we're drawn to those people that have similar styles and and that we can relate to. And we just watch them and um, how they manage people. Um, how they deal with challenging situations and, um, you know, and, and you see that that kind of matches your style and, mm-hmm. you, and you just learn from that. But, um, you know, there, we, we learn lessons every day from all kinds of people. Yeah. And, um, and I've been fortunate enough to have a very long career and have had the opportunity to work with an awful lot of people. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you know, something I've kind of picked up is you seem to be the kind of guy that um, listens first, talks second. So how do you, what advice do you give to somebody who talks first, listens second? Well, <laughs> there's a lot of different ways. You know, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of styles. There's yeah. autocratic yeah. leadership and they can all be successful. Um, but, you know, I have never felt like that I was the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. Um, I love to have my staff around me who are really experts in their areas yeah. and we just talk through things. And, um, you know, I personally, I like it when it's someone else's idea, they take ownership, they take pride in it and it's more likely to succeed than if you say it's going to be this way and it's going to be like, you know, yeah. uh, and, and so, you know, we've got, we work very collaboratively, um, you know, we're trying to please 30 different, uh, members of our association. So that takes some work. And, um, you know, I think, I think it works best when, when we come together as a leadership of our staff and, and we come to a solution and everyone takes, has a little bit of ownership in that. I think that makes us more successful. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, it's so uh, interesting you talk about collaborative, right, wrong, or indifferent. I've heard some long-term co-op guys say, you know, like the, the best thing about a cooperative is local governance. And the worst thing about a cooperative is local governance. So, yeah. you know, trying to please all, all your members and is, is, is difficult. Like, yeah. Well, we like to say when you've seen one co-op, you've seen one co-op. That's exactly and right. They're, they're not the they're same. They're not all the same. And that is, I think, one of the big, one of our bigger challenges. I think that we, and this is probably true in every uh, industry, we're becoming less homogeneous over time. Yeah. There's probably never been uh, a, more opportunities to be different. Yeah. Um, we have big co-ops, little co-ops, some engaged in broadband, some not, some leaning more green than others. So, so the challenge, I think, only gets greater as we become less homogeneous. And I think that's true probably in every industry yeah Def, for sure in agriculture and um but i think you're right every industry probably most likely yeah. um so thinking about young chris and and where you are today how do you think you've changed as a leader over the years well i you know i've learned a lot um i've learned a lot from uh you know the hard way too you know i i think that 
the longer I've been at this the and the more experiences I've had, I, I really think, um, you know, you really have to get the right people in the right positions to, and, and um, so I think over time I've learned more about, you know, helping people, recognizing where they need a little help and encouraging them. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it just experienced teaches you a lot yeah absolutely um can you tell us about some mistakes you made as a leader and kind of what you've learned from them yeah you know um lots of mistakes um i think that you know early early on even mid-career you know you'll you'll make some decisions um even around hires that may be the easy thing to do or you know promote somebody because you don't want to have the hard feelings and then you end up having to deal with that later. Um, I, I think those were probably the, the biggest lessons I learned. It's, you know, you, you really got to think about what you want in the end. Um, and, and who's going to have the best opportunity to get, get there. And it's, it's better for everyone really. So, um, those, those, I think those are some of the tougher, yeah. Lessons. Yeah. Um, so, s- still talking about you. What's some? Of, what's one of the boldest or riskiest leadership moves you've ever made? Oh gosh. Um, <coughs> I'm sorry. You know, that that's that's a good question. I'm I'm base. I'm pretty risk averse, but so everything's relative, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, I you know I've uh, you know I I've stuck my neck out a few times. And, uh, well, your head's still attached. Yeah. My head's still attached, but you know, sometimes, you know, you have to make a change, um, that's maybe not all that popular, but you know, you're, you're driven by the business. Um, I can't think of a specific, um, situation. I've, I've been in a few where, you ultimately have to make a decision and you're not going to please everyone. Yeah. You're just not as hard as you've tried. You're not going to please everyone. And, um, you just do your best at explaining why and, and then you have to move on. But yeah, yeah. got a quite specific question to ask you. What do you tell somebody who's never worked for a board? Cause I talk to people all the time. Like they don't know the difference of working for somebody and working for a board. You know, you've probably, had a boss and we're a boss in, in the private sector and, you know, now in the cooperative world, you know, you work for a board and, you know, we've got a bunch of, specifically in agriculture, we have a bunch of new general managers that, you know, are trying to figure that out. And um, I'm sure in your world too, there's probably some new GMs trying to figure out how to work for boards as well. So any advice you would give somebody? You know, working for boards, I, I think it's great, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, when you're the CEO, your boss is, you have multiple bosses. In my case, I have 60. I have a board of 60. Um, but it works out very well. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think what they, tr- they um, entrust you to do what's right for the membership. And I think, you know, your job with the board is to keep them very informed, um, at least at the high enough level that they feel comfortable they're, they have a fiduciary duty, so they're always going to be looking at the finances in the books. Um, but I think as long as you communicate with them very well about what you're doing 
what you're providing to your membership or, you know, them in the way of services, and you listen and address any issues that they have, I think working for a board is actually rewarding. I mean, I think that, you know, they're not there to micromanage. Yep. They, they want to know directionally how things are going, and they'll bring up issues. But uh, it is different than working for, you know, a boss that's in the office every day. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's they, they have a governing role. And um, so, you know, I I don't know of too many. I, I think this goes back to training. We, we have a really good director training program. You might have a tendency to want to micromanage if you're a board member. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really not the role. Mm-hmm. But uh, so so I think that, you know, we've we're lucky enough that we've we've got that kind of training that really helps directors be good directors. Absolutely. Yeah. And to your point, I think working for a board is very rewarding as well. You know, I like the collaborative nature of it. And I liked it. You know, you said earlier as well that, you know, I don't like to be the smartest guy in the room. And I kind of subscribe to that theory as well. You know, big, big fan of John Maxwell. And, you know, one of the things that, that um, you know, he says, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're probably in the wrong room. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're the head of the class, right. find a new class. Right. right. So, um, yeah. um, so, um, just a couple more questions left for you. Uh, what kind of books uh, or podcasts uh, would you recommend? You know, we're always on the road. I'm sure you probably listen to books or listen to podcasts or whatever. Anything you recommend for folks? Well, I, I you know, I, I will tell you earlier in my career, and I, and I should probably continue doing this, I used to um, read every uh, Harvard Business Review. I would pick <laughs> one article as hard as some of those are to well, read. I would force myself, yeah. you know, that was part of what I considered uh, important for me in my personal development was to take an article and read it. Um, you know, I, I, I listen to a lot of news on the radio. I, I don't have a specific, you know, leadership person that I go to. Um, I, I've, I've read a lot of books over my career and um what's probably your favorite book you've read doesn't have to be a leadership book what's probably your favorite book oh gosh i love to read history books oh, me, as, me, yeah. as, me as well uh, you I'm know a, a nerd. Uh, yeah. yeah you know um about our founding fathers and, yeah you know our early presidents and i kind of like to read those read about those but. absolutely okay so this is the last question i ask for everybody and ask of everybody that we interview and um I'll give you kind of an out a little bit since you're from the state of Kansas. <laughs> but uh, um, so who would you say the greatest the greatest leader in Oklahoma history is? The greatest leader in Oklahoma history. And then I'll history. let you do Kansas as well because I'm interested yeah, in that. Well, yeah. Let me see. In Oklahoma, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I don't I'm going to have to think about that, RJ. Okay. Um, I think Henry Bellman actually was a pretty good, uh, had great vision, yeah. you know, and, and I, I think that he he encouraged citizens to engage. And, um, you know, I, I don't know a great deal about Henry Bellman, but I know that that was part of his legacy is he, he was really did want uh, citizens to engage. Yeah, he's a, a rural guy, uh, Billings, Oklahoma, yes, hometown. Right, right. Yeah. So who's yeah. the greatest leader in Kansas <laughs> history? 
Oh, and you gosh. guys have a lot longer history than we do. Yeah, so, yeah. I don't know, um, RJ. I have not really thought about that. Um, I've been gone so, <laughs> so long. long. Yeah. I've been gone so yeah. long, and yeah. I left. Uh, you know, I I grew up in Kansas. I went to Kansas State, um, and then I left in my you know early twenties. So yeah. I, I don't know that I really at that stage in my life had really thought about who the greatest leader was in Kansas. Probably your dad. Well, he was a good one, you know. <laughs> yeah. He really was. He, he really was. Yeah. He, 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 he was great. Hey, uh, thank you so much for being with us today on this sure. podcast. Enjoyed uh, sitting down with you and getting to talk to you about leadership and rural issues. So thanks yeah. for doing it. You bet. It was enjoyed talking. Thank you all for being here for this episode of Cultivate. I'm R.J. Gray with the Oklahoma Agriculture Cooperative Council, and we'll see you next time.